on that a little bit. All right. Uh, let's take our uh, Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. This thing is not hooked up right here. Let's get that in my pocket there. Nothing ever works out good for me. Everything bad always happens to me. And then I get shot by a girl. <laughs> All right. Acts chapter 20, verse 26 through 32. That's, uh, that's that old line from that John Wayne movie I was telling you about the other day. So uh, pay no attention. I just use that whenever anything wrong goes uh, during my day. <laughs> just say everything bad always happens to me, you know. So <laughs> it alleviates the pain. <laughs> Acts chapter 20, verse 26 through verse 32. We've been uh, going through a series on Wednesday nights. On, I entitled it, God's Prevailing Work Through the Centuries. And we're looking at uh, what God has done through his churches down through the centuries. It's sort of a history lesson as well as some messages that uh, uh, give us uh, the sense of the importance of, of doctrinal truth and, and uh the preservation of the truth, these kind of, um, these kind of important matters that we, need, we as Christians need to have a, a background for. So Acts chapter 20, verse 26 through verse 32, uh, addresses some of these things. Remember last time we looked at some of the uh, significant changes in church government, and so we looked at those four different kinds of church government that kind of evolved after the apostolic era and then getting into the second century and, and the third century, we saw some... Uh, Significant changes in church government. We looked at those last time, and um, and now we're you know we we also uh, uh, noted some other things there that uh, we didn't have time to really develop. But there were some real unscriptural changes in clergy classes and the hierarchy that developed, and all that thing, and the idea of a clergy and a laity that wasn't is not a biblical uh, separation, but it's one that happened in these different church governments that were going on. And so, uh, but even before uh, Paul left the scene, he was warning his churches about that. And so I wanted uh, to preface our, our thoughts tonight with the book of Acts in chapter 20, verse 26 through verse 30. You can read seated there. Uh, I'm just going to read these four verses now, and we'll look at a couple others later. But Acts chapter 20, verse uh, 26 through verse 30. Uh, Paul says, Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. I'm pure from the blood of all men. That's, he's saying that because he said, uh, I'm with the blood of men on my hands because I, when I had the opportunity to give them the gospel, I gave them the gospel. And, uh, you know, that's something that ought to convict all of us. We've had opportunity to give people the gospel and haven't. And so Paul was able to say up to this point in his life, he said, you know, every time God's given me an open door, I've, I've taken that opportunity. It doesn't mean that he spoke to everyone that went by him on the street. It doesn't mean that he spoke to everybody that was in, within hearing range of him or, or shouting range of him. It just means what God op- when God opened the door and gave him the opportunity to be a testimony, he was a testimony. So he said, uh, you know, I'm pure from the blood of all men. He said, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. So take heed, therefore, uh, unto yourselves and to all the flock. He's talking principally and primarily to the leadership in the churches there that, that he stopped by to see. Uh, there in Ephesus, and the uh, elders at Ephesus there are the primary ones he's addressing, but others are gathered around. He says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves, to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. And I want you to notice that it's the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. It's hard to separate Jesus from God in that, uh, isn't it? So I tell you, that's uh, another of those passages you can use 
on the Mormons, those witnesses who don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. Uh, feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Uh, and so, I'm sorry, I forgot to dismiss the uh, disciples and the disciples there. They took the cue anyway, so I appreciate that. So they're not just mad at me for uh, mentioning John Wayne there, so they're... they're they're going to discipleship, okay. Uh, so he says, uh, take heed. And, and, he, and he says, for this I know, and this is a focus I want to uh, point out tonight, really, verse 29. For this I know, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Our purpose is to get disciples following Jesus Christ, not to draw away disciples after ourselves. And so he said, that's going to happen, and that's going to come about even after I'm, you know, stepping away from the situation. Even while Paul was still alive, he was aware that these uh, grievous wolves, these persons with ulterior motives, were going to do what they could under the inspiration of the wicked one to, uh, to, to separate uh, Christians from their churches and to drive wedges and to cause doctrinal division of these things. He knew that was going to take place, and certainly it did and it has and it will continue so. So we, uh, we looked at that. We saw some of the factors that, were, uh, that led to the rise in the ecclesiastical hierarchy that developed in some of those uh, larger congregations in the metropolitan areas. We saw that there were political models in the Roman uh, government, uh, you know, the politics of Rome and the religion of Rome was inextricably intertwined. And so they had that, uh, they had that, they were born into that kind of world. So it was pretty easy to, you know, to extrapolate that out into, into the local church, into the government of the church and, and begin to do some things that weren't biblical because they had that as one model. They had also the Old Testament Judaism model, which had a hierarchy, and we talked about that a little bit, with the Levites and then the priest, priest class, and then the high priest. And within the priest class, you had divisions within that, too, of different responsibilities in the priest class and, and uh, some that were over others and that kind of thing. So there was a hierarchical type of situation there. Uh, and there was the, also the appreciation for the uh, metropolitan churches, the really more appreciation for the mother churches that would be the, the ones that were started by the apostles in the different towns. There, there was naturally a sense of, um, of deeper you know, a sense of, wow, you know, this is one of the churches that was actually planted by the Apostle Paul or by Peter or by Barnabas or by uh, Simon, you know. And so you had, uh, you had those churches having, uh, developing, uh, you know, a, a greater influence than some of the others. So you had, uh, especially in, in Rome and in Antioch and in Alexandria in the north of Africa in Egypt, you have these metropolitan centers with large congregations of believers now who have come to Christ, and the influence there is, is greater. So these, um, these things all contributed to the you know, development of kind of a hierarchy within some of the larger churches and areas where the population was close together and the communication was better. The country churches and the places where they were far away from the main uh, you know, population centers they weren't, that wasn't happening in those churches. They were, you know, there was less, uh, less for them to be influenced by these kind of circumstances. And, and so they were developing biblically as an independent body of believers, you know, 
uh, in their areas and winning people to Christ. And uh, there was, of course, contact with other churches, but it wasn't as, as readily available as it was in the metropolitan areas. So that was something. And then you had the rise of heresy. You have, you know, heretical things going on. You have persons, you know, coming up with, with uh, doctrinal things that were uh, aberrant, that were wrong. Uh, and, you know, even the, even the main line, even the larger metropolitan churches were recognizing, hey, there's all these, you know, all these isms and all these persons that are coming up with ideas, writing letters and confusing people. And so the rise of heresy was, it seemed, you know, logical that, hey, we need maybe a centralized authority, maybe a centralized truth. So those were contributing things to the unscriptural development uh, developments in, in church government. So he had that kind of thing uh, going on. Uh, but the, you know, that, the idea that we have to form some sort of a, you know, an order uh, to protect the truth, the, they missed the point there, they missed the biblical point that God had already ordained that the local church was to be the pillar and ground of truth, you know, that it wasn't to be in some central authority or some central church or group of churches. It was to be uh, in individual congregations of people de dependent and reliant on the Word of God. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. And, and again, in the pastoral, uh, the books that are called the pastoral books, they're written, uh, they're written primarily to you know, address the uh, responsibilities that pastors have to congregations. And so here's Timothy, young pastor, and Paul writing to him, 1 Timothy 3 and verse uh, 15, familiar passage. Uh, to you, so he says, uh, he said, but if I tarry long, if I'm gone for a while, I want to, I want to instruct you here. He said, if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. Notice that line, the pillar and ground of truth. And so uh, he says that uh, Peter, uh, uh, Timothy, I want you to know how to behave, know how to lead, know how to. Uh, you know, uh, know how to shepherd, know how to pastor that uh, work. And I want you to understand that that uh, local church is what God has ordained to be the pillar and ground of the truth. So now the Catholic leader would say, well, well that, means, that means the, the visible universal church, generically speaking, but the visible universal church, the Catholic church. And the Protestant leader would come along and he would say, well, that doesn't mean that. It means the invisible universal church. That's what that means, but we can't let them get away with that because we just have to point them to the context and show them the context and see that the context is talking about a local church and deacons in that church, a pastor in that church, and the responsibilities of deacons in that congregation. And, and uh, you know, the, the specifics of the congregation are very obvious there. And he's telling Timothy, the church that he's the pastor of is the pillar and ground of truth, is a one of those institutions that God has placed on the earth to be that keeping place of the truth. So the local assembly of believers is that keeping place of God's truth. And we are all, as local churches, are responsible. All biblical local churches are responsible to protect the truth and to pre uh, preach the truth, persuade people of the truth. So we didn't need this. We didn't need this man-made system where they said, well, we'll just, we'll figure out what the truth is. We'll have a central authority that will be the arbiter of truth, and then everybody else will line up with that central authority. And, in, you know, in humanly speaking, something like that says, well, that makes sense. 
humanly speaking, but God had ordained it a different way, and we just read it there in that, uh, in that passage. Now, Robert Sargent writes a lot concerning church history, and he, uh, he wrote that the idea, generally, I'm just paraphrasing here, the idea of a universal uh, visible church was a logical outcome of the developments of these early centuries after the era of the apostolic churches. And it was, you know, humanly speaking, it was a logical development to coming out of that time, but it just wasn't a biblical development. So the, uh, the concept, the idea of uh, this, you know, centralized authority and so forth, really uh, the earliest you can trace it to was a man by the name of Cyprian of Carthage. Carthage is in North Africa. Uh, and um, so he was the first one that we have any remnant of writings about that uh, he lived in the first half of the third century and was the first one apparently that was the promoter of this idea uh, of, a, of a more hierarchical structure and a centralized authority. Uh, how would he justify it when the, when the Bible's pretty clear on what the church is? Uh, you know, it's really... Uh, it's really not a difficult, um, you know, not a difficult thing to determine what the definition of the church is when you read the Bible. Uh, it is a called out local assembly of believers that are given a purpose by God to evangelize the world. And so it's clear in the Bible what that church uh, is used 115 times in the Bible. And uh, nearly every time it's referring to a local assembly someplace. There's only a couple of three places where it's used in a generic sense of all churches in general. Uh, but it's very, very easy to determine from the Bible what the definition of church is. So how would he get away with the idea that this is maybe this, this universal church theory, you know? Uh, one church and this hierarchy and, and answer to that one and all of that. Uh, what they did, what he did was to equate the two terms, uh, the, the term church and the term kingdom. The term kingdom in the Bible, in the, the Greek language, comes from a word that they use for the, uh, for the buildings in Rome, the basilica, uh, the church buildings in Rome, sometimes called basilica. It comes from the root word that's basis, the root word basis, uh, and the basilica was, a, was a, a word that referred to a realm, a realm, a kingdom. So when you see it translated in your English Bible, kingdom, it comes from that word basilica, uh, or, a, or a form of that word, and, uh, and it means a kingdom. It means, a, a kingdom means kingdom. <laughs> it means a realm. And so what, uh, what uh, Cyprian did was he equated the church and the kingdom. He put them as one. He said these are one. The church, kingdom is one. It's interchangeable. Uh, it's interchangeable terminology for the same thing. And, so, and that same thing, he said, was the universal church, the universal uh, uh, the Romans developed the Roman Church developed it into the idea of universal visible church, uh, but it was Cyprian who introduced the thought of this this universal mystical church. You know, so so uh, and he did that by by assimilating. You know, um, the um, uh, Robert Sargent called it logoside, <laughs> logoside, which he. He murdered a couple of words and killed them and put them together to make a new word. So, so uh, uh, but uh, that's, that's what happened. That's how that began to develop. And, and um, now since the Bible does teach that we enter the kingdom of God through the new birth, through salvation, then it was a small step to say that, to begin to teach that we enter the kingdom of God through the church. So that developed too. That idea developed you can't be saved apart from being part 
of a church, the church, the church, you know, and of course it developed into the more prominent ones uh, being, you know, uh, dominating that idea. So all that time, you got all that going on, you've got these Bible-believing churches that are saying, no, 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 that's not right, that's not right, and being called, uh, you know, heretics and being put on the uh, other side of the tracks, that kind of thing. is That's happening uh, all along. I want to read you some direct quotes from the surviving, the, they call them extant, that means existing writings, existing manuscripts that they have uh, of Cyprian's writings. And he writes, he can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. And he also writes, there is no salvation outside the church. He equated this, he did this by equating kingdom of God and church together as one. So that's what Cyprian is teaching. He's promoting that. That's catching on. It was later that the Roman Catholic Church added this, and the Roman Catholic Church still holds this as a cardinal doctrine. This is the statement from Rome. There is no salvation outside the Church of Rome. So that was a small step from what you know, Cyprian had developed and said there's no salvation outside the church. There wasn't a Roman Catholic church yet when Cyprian wrote those words. It didn't exist yet. So, um, but when it did, when it came into power and influence, that was the statement that was eventually made. So Cyprian is the one who develops much of his doctrine uh, as a result of, remember I told you about the Novatians, these followers of Novation who were, you know, considered heretics that were resisting the hierarchy. They were saying, no, the church is local assembly of believers. It's pastor-led. It's got deacons in it. It does its own affairs. It's not connected with the government. It's not associated with government. It's not, uh, you know, trying to influence the government by its existence or trying to allow the government to influence it. There's not, they're not connected together. And so, uh, Novation and then his followers took that line and, of course, they are our forebearers. They're Anabaptists, and so they were, you know, uh, in that position. So it was Cyprian's uh, work. Much of his doctrinal development came as a result of arguing with the Novationists. And so um, they were, these Novationists were labeled schismatics. They were labeled schismatics by those more well-established metropolitan kind of churches that were moving toward a hierarchical form of government. So that's, you know, that's our, that's our uh, spiritual forebears we're talking about there. Now, many other changes are traced back to the third century. We're going to finish with the third century tonight, and uh, there's a number of other changes I will briefly mention. There were changes in church discipline. You know, in the Bible, what church discipline is, and it says in the scriptures pretty plainly, if, if you have an ought with a brother and you go to him and you know, uh, can't settle it. You bring another brother, and it, it won't. It's not settled there, and and uh, this brother's in some sin, and you know, it's made public, and uh, two, one person tries to deal with it. Uh, you know, maybe a pastor goes to somebody, and uh, they reject that, and maybe the a pastor and a deacon or a couple of deacons go to him and say, "Look, you know, you're, you know, this is happening. It's uh, it's become public knowledge, and it's uh, you know, it's a sinful thing, and it's a terrible testimony, and you need to repent and get right." You know, and he. He says, okay, you know, you're right, you know, I'm wrong, and I need to do that, and does it, and praise the Lord, it's taken care of. At that point, church discipline uh, can, and often does, go, only goes to that first step or the second step, you know, uh, and, um, and then if that doesn't happen, then the third step that uh, Matthew uh, 17 uh, tells us is, is that, or Matthew uh, 18, I'm sorry, verse 15 through 17 is where the, where the uh, it's developed. It says, then take it to, to the church. You know, the third thing is take it to church and 
and it has to become public. And so at that point, the individual, uh, is, if he's still unrepentant, is, is uh, put out of the uh, membership of the church. So that was happening. It did happen from the time the church was established. There was church discipline. We even see it in the book of 1 Corinthians. Here's a case in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where an individual has taken the idea of liberty to the nth degree, and now he's having uh, intimate relationships with his stepmother, and it's open, everybody knows about it, and they're actually celebrating this. In the church, they're saying, you know, we're so, we're so uh, forward and so progressive and so modern and so open-minded, and so our liberty in Christ is such that we can, we can uh, even celebrate these kinds of things. Well, if, you've, uh, if you get the opportunity to go to Corinth and hear, hear the history of Corinth, you'll understand how that, that was very common practice. Uh, you know, the, the, the temple was filled with temple prostitutes there in the, uh, in the pagan religion that was there. So the Corinthians were much more, you know, much more versed in some of these perversions uh, already. So now that it's coming into the church there, here's Paul appalled at what's happening here. And he's saying, you know, I've heard this is so among you. And he said, if it's so, here's what you do. He said, you, you know, that person ought to repent and, and confess it and forsake it. And uh, if he doesn't, then I want you to have no fellowship with him, and I want you to put him out, you know, and treat him as and the last of the, the 13th verse of that chapter. And, uh, and the 13th verse simply says, you know, if, he, if there's no repentance, if there's no change, if there's no response, then to treat him as a, a publican and as a heathen. So he, he is to be viewed as never having been saved. And, you know, uh, that's the way, way that they were to finish this one. They were to, uh, he was not to be a member of the church anymore, and they were to, uh, do what they could to try to win him to Christ because that's how you treat a publican or a pagan uh, or a sinner. You, you don't hate them. You try to win them to Christ. You know? So, so uh, that, that was biblical church di- discipline. But that changed dramatically uh, as we entered into this hierarchical government. And you remember how they were beginning to bring into the membership people that weren't even saved yet on the hope that they would come to, you know, come into fellowship with Christ and, and come into fellowship with the church. So they were admitting them based on, you know, practicalities, on influence, on money. They were admitting them on those kinds of basis. And so they had issues going on. So uh, when they would, you know, when it would be serious enough matter for someone to be uh, disciplined by church discipline, they would, they would want to come back into the membership later and uh, they were called penitents. If they wanted to come back in, they had to uh, come in as penitents. They had to be humiliated publicly as penitents, and they had to sit in a separate section of the church. There was an area for penitents there, and they had to do penance. They had to do things to, uh, to pay, to demonstrate, to, uh, you know, to show they were genuinely repentant, so they had to do certain things, and so this was called doing penance. And initially it was, you know, it was based on some sense of an idea, well, we want to see some repentance in their life, you know, and we, want to, we don't want to bring them into the full fellowship until we know they're really repentant. And so it's based on uh, initially on some, you know, some uh, principles that did at least have their roots in, uh, in biblical truth. But what occurred over time was it moved from uh, the penitence place to to people doing penance, to people being given the opportunity to do penance before they committed the sin in order to pay the price and then go ahead and do the sin. So, so there were the indulgences that were, you know, developed, and this was by the time it came to Martin Luther's day, you know, it was widely developed to the, uh, the purchasing of indulgences to 
go ahead and do whatever you wanted to do. You were indulged in that. God would indulge you in that sin if you would just simply pay X amount to the priest and so on. So you would be able to indulge in that sin and have it all taken care of. And it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was paid beforehand. So that's what penance developed into. From that, from the idea of the penitents and the penance developed two classes of sin, what are the, if you have Roman Catholic background, like some of us do, what were the two classes of sin? There was venial sin and mortal sin. What was venial sin? Not so bad, yeah. It's just minor sin, trivial sin. And then the mortal sin was that which would, uh, you know, would, would affect the salvation of your soul. Uh, and so you had, um, you had two levels of uh, sin. And this, this, I'm telling you, this is previous to the fully developed Roman Catholic uh, theology. This was previous to, this was occurring, this idea, the error was occurring previous to even the, uh, the Emperor Constantine's time and his declaration of the uh, Christian church being, you know, the church of Rome and all that. So, so this uh, was already beginning to, you know, take place early on in, in that third century. So you have changes also in church worship. And one of the things that you'll notice if you'll read the church fathers uh, and some of that history, uh, you'll notice that there was a lot of emphasis on asceticism, which is an influence that came. They were in the Middle East, but there was a great deal of uh, Eastern influence in you know that area of the world because of the trade and so forth like that and because of the you know what we used to call the oriental uh influence and and that idea of that eastern mystical influence was there and asceticism developed out of that it was a product of oriental mysticism and uh so from that developed a class of you know uh, those that were supposedly super committed to god and so they became hermits or they dedicated themselves um, fully to just doing without everything but the most basic of needs, fasting all the time and, and you know, um, doing self-flagellation. And, and uh, there were those that even castrated themselves uh, uh, to be eunuchs for the Lord and so forth like that. Uh, isolating themselves from society, drawing out of society altogether, separating out into, uh, into monastic kind of settings. That was taking place too in the third century among some of these uh, hierarchical types of groups. So uh, that was going on as well. And then the idea of celibacy, you know, not uh, having a family and being celibate and so forth. Um, and so that, those things, you know, we think of the Roman Catholic Church developing those things later on, but those were already, the roots of those or the seeds of those were already planted uh, way back as far as the third century. So uh, the Roman Catholic Church, you know, took it to the nth degree and, and, and so forth and has, has uh, been seeing the consequences of the foolish, unbiblical positions that uh, they have certainly been seeing the consequences of uh, consequence of that for many years, but uh, changes in the in the church worship were were happening. Changes in the places of worship they became more formal. In Rome, it became the basilica because it was based on the buildings that they used in Rome as the courthouses and, and the um, the stock and trade places. They were uh, political. Uh, places they were very formal buildings, the pillars and so forth, and di different uh, you know parts of the inside of the building, the asp of the and the part for the clergy and the part for the penitents and and you know the narthex and the different things that uh, they had in the building for different persons, different places. So places of worship 
change. You were reading the Bible, and the place of worship was wherever they were, you know. If it was in somebody's house, and they gathered, and they met in a house, that's the church. The church was the people, not the place, you know, uh, not the house, not the building itself. So where the gathering of God's people gathered together, and they were assembled as, a, as an organized assembly of believers uh, into a church, then that's, that's the church, you know. So, but here now, it was a more formal place of worship, and this basilica idea and the symbolism started kicking in in the third century. You had the sign of the cross, uh, was thought to have some sort of mystical you know, efficacious value, and so the sign of the cross was, was coming into prevalent, uh, prominence there among those, among those more formalistic um, metropolitan groups. The rise of uh, mediators, uh, saintly mediators. They would go to uh, an elderly saint who had suffered persecutions in an earlier Roman persecution, and they would ask him to write what they called a letter of mercy if, it was, if they wanted to come back into the church and they 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 were a person that was you know wanting to get readmitted into the congregation because of some past sins that they'd gotten excommunicated for. They would go to one of these elderly saints that had suffered persecution, and they would uh, have a letter of mercy written from them, saying you know I vouch for this person. They would take that, and the person would be received into the into the back into the church that way. And so what these the suffering of these elderly saints they became almost venerated and exalted to a position that was not a biblical position. And it will move from there, of course, to saints in heaven and praying to saints. So that came later. That came with the Roman Catholic uh, changes later. But the roots of it were there in the third century. That was all in place. So that's going on. There was the changes. We already mentioned some of the changes to baptism, but it became a great ceremony. And the sign of the cross was used on the forehead and the, and the breast. The uh, candidate was given milk and honey. <laughs> And uh, salt was placed on the candidate's head before the uh, baptism was performed. Often an exorcism w- a ceremony would be performed. <laughs> I mean, if the guy's going to, uh, coming to be baptized, he's supposedly been born again, you know. So uh, what they'd do, you know, just for good measure, do an exorcism ceremony b- performed before the baptism. And then the, uh, the candidate for baptism had to have a sponsor that would vouch for him. So all of these unscriptural things were added to the ceremony of baptism, making it, uh, you know, very religious, sacramental kind of a ceremony instead of what it is, biblically speaking. So uh, it came to the place where the water had to be consecrated. It had to be holy water. And so... Uh, they had to consecrate the water, and to do that, they had to have a consecrator, which had to be a priest, and so those kinds of things were changes that were occurring. There were changes to the Bible as well in that time, and the principal uh, mover and shaker in that change was a man by the name of Origen. You'll read a lot about Origen because he's a prolific writer. He wrote in his lifetime over 6,000 books. He was a genius. He was a very bright individual, humanly speaking, uh, but he was, a, he was uh, a philosopher. He'd been deeply influenced by the philosophies of Plato, uh, Aristotle, and the Greek philosophers. And so his mindset was intellectual, very intellectual. He was very familiar and very well-versed in uh, Platonic um, philosophy and, and the uh, writings of Aristotle and so forth. He was very familiar with these things and so incorporated all this. Went to uh, a school in Alexandria, Egypt, uh, which was the prominent school in the world at that time as far as secularism was concerned, and it had the greatest library in the world at that time in Alexandria, Egypt. He studied there, and he eventually became the president of that school uh, as a relatively young man, uh, 
uh, barely out of his teens when that occurred. He um, practiced an aesthetic lifestyle and uh, later moved to Caesarea. When you go to uh, Israel, you're going to have the opportunity to be taken to Caesarea. And it's a wonderful trip. It's a beautiful area. Uh, Caesarea by the sea. It was one of the places where the Caesars uh, would, uh, would spend some time. And the, some of the original buildings have been uncovered and are there. The great theater there at Caesarea. You're going to go there and you're going to see where Paul uh, made some of his defenses. And you're going to be able to see the very place where this man Origen studied. He took his he took his library there, which was very extensive, and he, uh, his decision was, because he was uh, dismissed from the, from the uh, Alexandrian um, college there, the university, he decided that he was going to, uh, to uh, establish a school there in Caesarea that would rival uh, the uh, university there in Alexandria. And so he did that, and all the time he was continuously writing and writing and writing. But his approach to the Bible was mystical, it was allegorical, it was philosophical in its mindset. So uh, he's, not, he's not the kind of individual that we want to look to for authoritative understanding of what the Word of God says. But that is certainly what all of the uh, predominant the, uh, um, theological schools do. They, they, Origen is a great hero to the theological schools other than you know, the, the fundamentalists. Uh, he is, in all the other schools, Origen is the man. You know, he is the guy because he's an intellectual giant. Uh, no doubt about that. And the other remarkable thing is that a great many of his uh, writings s still survive. They're still existing today. So, uh, uh, but the good thing about all that for us is that Origen continuously quoted Scripture in his writing. So of all of the existing Scriptures that we have that date back to the 2nd and 3rd centuries, we, uh, Origen is the, is the individual that, that uh, you know, copied down scriptures as he was writing his books and commenting. He wrote commentaries on nearly every book of the Bible. Uh, and, of course, he allegorized so much of it and dismissed so much of it. But he did quote what was written. And so uh, we have, you know, uh, nearly half of, the, half of what we have concerning manuscripts that are uh, of the scriptures that are outside the, you know, scriptures themselves uh, are from him. And so, um, from from uh, from uh, origin. So, uh, but he wrote a lot of his beliefs were 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 pretty mixed up. He wrote this. He said the scriptures are of little use to those who understand them as they are written. <laughs> Genius, you know, <laughs> Genius. But you know, the intellectual the intellectual likes that kind of thing. He likes the idea of allegory and mystery and you know the deeper deeper meaning and the deeper life and all that stuff, you know. They like that. They get off on that. So, um, so that was his, his position. Uh, he denied the literal account of Adam and Eve. He denied the literal creation. He taught that souls existed from eternity past. There are cults today that still believe that same thing and got it from origin. He taught the transmigration of the soul from a uh, to a higher life form or to a lower life form, depending on your deeds. What does that sound like? Reincarnation, yeah. He, really he, he taught a form of reincarnation. Uh, yet he's considered one of the great Christian thinkers of uh, the early church fathers. So uh, figure that one out. He taught the eventual universal salvation of all. That's appealing to people because I mean, they're just saying, you know, I hate, that, I hate the idea that there's a hell and there's a judgment and people go to hell and I don't want anybody to go to hell. So if somebody would just convince me 
that eventually everybody's going to get saved, and, and if they just go through purgatory long enough, a few thousand years, eventually we're going to go to heaven. I'd like that better. Uh, and so, because, you know, that's what our human nature would like better, and all of us would like that better, but it's just not what the Bible teaches. Uh, you know, it's just not what the Bible teaches. So he, he believed that, though. He taught that, uh, he taught that philosophy that eventually there would be, everyone would be, uh, would be saved, their soul would be saved. Uh, he rejected physical resurrection. He believed stars and planets had souls. He referred to pastors. He was the first person to refer to pastors of churches as the priest of the church. So uh, he, he was um, quite, uh, quite an interesting character. So Origen is not the guy to look to, but although you're going to, when you read in your, you know, your accounts, as you're reading church history or you're reading uh, philosophy or you're reading theology, they're going to refer to Origen as a great thinker, and they're going to suggest to you that, uh, you know, what, what he taught uh, has great value. So you've got to watch for things like that. But uh, that was what's going on, and, and he, was a, he was one of the primary influences in the third century of the churches. So we're going to move next time to the fourth century and look at some other things that uh, uh, happen as we move closer to, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the present day, going through the centuries and following the hand of God through it all. So let's go ahead and stop there. We'll uh, take some time for prayer. Do we have uh, other prayer requests that I missed? Um, anybody that wanted to add to that tonight besides our unspoken? Remember the 30 or so folks unspoken? If, you, if you'd like to, too, if you have something you think of afterwards, we have added a box in the, in the back there in the foyer area that is a place to put your prayer request. If you think of them and, and uh, didn't get it, if you can just write those down and put them in. What we'll do is we'll take them out uh, on Thursdays. The staff will take them out, and, and we'll pray for those things. And then we'll pass along the ones on the prayer chain and the prayer list, uh, too, on our uh, email. So um, that will make it uh, another avenue that you can um, uh, give prayer requests of any sort. And so there's cards on the back there with the little black box there and slide it in there. It's a suggestion box there, uh, uh, but uh, we, we only take prayer suggestions, so... We put a we put a um, you know one of those paper shredders under the suggestion box and that's worked really well for us over the years. So, uh, but uh, but for the prayer requests, no, we do read those. So, all right. So, so uh, all right. Let's go ahead and, and uh, uh, go to the, our Lord in prayer. If you remember our two missionaries uh, that we asked about, Brother Case and Brother Kearney, uh, if we'll do that, I'm going to ask Brother Phil Thompson to lead us in prayer.